But during this season of Lent, we are exploring together several of the many psalms of lament sprinkled throughout the Psalter. And the psalms of lament were written by people in distress to be read by people in distress. And as such, they are simultaneously comforting and jarring in their raw honesty. The tone of the psalms of lament can at times feel brash, making you wonder aloud whether you can really say such things to God. And yet there they are, forever captured in the word of God, teaching us how to engage in a relationship with him when we are angry or confused or distressed. Their very presence invites us to put these words in our mouth and speak them back to God ourselves. And this morning we are going to be considering Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together as a single unit. And the reason for this is because in many Hebrew manuscripts you'll actually find these two psalms treated as one. So there's historical precedent. But there's also permission from the text itself to treat these two as one. The first textual permission is the fact that Psalm 43 has no title which is unusual for the psalms found in this section of the Psalter. The Psalter is divided into five what they call books, and Psalm 42 and 43 are the first psalms in the second book of the Psalter. And there are 30 psalms total in this second book of the Psalter, but only one other beside Psalm 43 lacks a title. And when I say the word title, what I'm talking about are the words, if you look at the psalm, the words at the, the top of the psalm. If you look at Psalm 42, you'll see, depending on your translation, something like, To the leader, a mascal of the Korahites. The title often identifies who you should understand to be the author of the psalm, who was the intended recipient of the psalm, the tune that the psalm should be used if the psalm were to be sung, and it even provides sometimes the larger context in which the psalm should be placed. But Psalm 43 has no title suggesting that the title for Psalm 42 suffices for the two of them when considered as a unit. And strengthening this conclusion is the second textual permission to consider them together. There's a refrain that shows up twice in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That refrain shows up again almost verbatim at the end of Psalm 43. And taken together, you get this this pattern of three units over the course of the two psalms, each unit containing a section of lament or a prayer, followed by the refrain I just read for you. And initially, this pattern of repetition creates a, a static dynamic, a feeling of cyclical movement, as though the psalmist makes no real progress towards a conclusion, and everything is just repeated over and over and over again. However, the repetition of this pattern over the course of these two psalms actually provides the structure to be able to trace the psalmist's transition from despair to hope. Reading this psalm is almost like reading a diary. Because that's almost how this psalm reads. The psalmist is pouring out his soul. He's asking questions like when and where and why. But the questions are almost exclusively addressed to himself, to his soul. The psalmist is talking to himself. And we get the chance to read his inner dialogue. It's incredibly intimate. But there's a reassurance in this intimacy. 
Because in listening to the psalmist's struggle, we find that we're not alone in the feelings of despair and depression that often afflict us as well. Every one of us, to varying levels to be sure, experiences depression or at least disappointment in this life and with this life. The psalmist writing for himself has perhaps unwittingly written for us too. He's doing what Charles Spurgeon, a man dubbed the Prince of Preachers in 19th century England, also did. Spurgeon's sermons were so good that while he was still only in his early 20s, over 10,000 people would come to listen to him preach every Sunday at New Park Street Chapel in London. He was famous. But despite his fame, Spurgeon struggled with severe depression and at one point considered leaving the pulpit for good. But he persevered. And later in life, he often spoke of his depression for the benefit of others. And he once said this, Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be comforting to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereon, that younger men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they became for a season possessed by melancholy. And that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joyously did not always walk in the light. Neither success nor righteousness offer protection against the unwelcome visitations of despair and melancholy in this life. They certainly didn't for Charles Spurgeon. Neither did they for the psalmist. But they have recorded their experience so that we might be comforted by the knowledge that Christians, we might even say good Christians, experience depression. They have written down their experience to teach us how to work through this confusion of soul and mind. And the psalmist is deeply disturbed in his spirit. He opens his psalm by describing an inexplicable thirst in his soul for God. Verse 1 reads, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Thirst is a a passive experience. You do not make yourself thirst, and neither can you deny it. It happens to you. You can only satisfy it when it speaks to you. And the psalmist knows that God alone can satisfy his thirsty soul, but for some reason, he's left him alone. He compares his thirst for God to a fainting deer panting for water in the wilderness. His is a a spiritual affliction that he experiences bodily, which is so often the experience of those who are depressed. It's not just spiritual and emotional, but physical, bodily. He desires to drink deeply of God and to be satisfied, as it were. And yet the only water he can find are salty tears. In verse 3, he says, My tears have been my only food night and day. He has wept until his eyes have become puffy and swollen, and his face has become chapped with all the wiping. It surprises him that he even has any tears left in him. Where does this unsatisfying water keep coming from? Desiring to be filled, he confesses in verse 4 that his soul has been poured out instead. He desires to drink from God, but ironically feels as though God is cruelly drowning him. All your breakers and waves have gone over me, he writes in verse 7. 
He feels as though God is a a wave that has slammed his body into the rippled seabed below where seashells and sand tear at his skin and make him bloody. The water his soul desires is salt water that only stings in his wounds. He describes God as his rock in verse 9 and his refuge in verse 2 of Psalm 43 and yet he feels himself evicted As though at a critical moment, God pulled back his protection and left the psalmist exposed and vulnerable when he needed him most. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? He asked God in verses 9 and 43-2. He feels abandoned. And there are a number of circumstantial reasons that appear to have contributed to the psalmist's depression. In verses 10 and 43-2, there's mention of enemies and adversaries. In 43-1, they are further described as ungodly, deceitful, and unjust people. He's surrounded by mean people, people he doesn't like. And these mean people appear to take pleasure in the psalmist's torment by taunting him with the question, where is your God? Which hurts in its insinuation that either God's affections have changed or he doesn't really exist at all. Twice it is repeated in this psalm, where is your God? It's a question that that implies either the psalmist is sinful or stupid, or both. And it's a question that the psalmist has no answer for. Because looking around, there's no sign of him. It's a question that perhaps he was even asking his own soul, where is my God? In his search for God, he he took a stroll down, down memory lane. But it was only bitterness to him to remember how good things had been in the past. In verse 4, he writes, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. The the worship of of the Jewish people was, was boisterous. And the Psalms are exhibit A. C.S. Lewis, in his Reflections on the Psalms, describes their worship as possessing all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even a physical desire. It is gay and jocund. They are glad and rejoice. Their fingers itch for the harp, for the lute and the harp. Wake up, lute and harp. Let's have a song. Bring the tambourine. Bring the merry harp with the lute. We're going to sing merrily and make a cheerful noise. Noise, you may well say. Mere music is not enough. Let everyone, even the benighted Gentiles, clap their hands. Let us have clashing cymbals, not only well-tuned, but loud, and dances too. That was the character of their worship during festivals when scores of, of Jews would stream into the city of Jerusalem. It was loud and expressive. And our psalmist, he not only participated, he was a leader. The title of Psalm 42 informs us that he was a Korahite. These were the people whose job it was to perform music in the temple. They were the worship leaders. But now that is distant from him, both physically and temporally. He wonders aloud in verse 2 whether or not he'll ever again be able to do what his training and education prepared him and qualified him to do. When shall I again come and appear before God. The psalmist is struggling here with purpose. He's he's lost his job with no prospect that he'll ever have the chance to do what he loves again. It's so far out of his reach at this point. 
In verse 6, there's, there, there's the mention of the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizar. All locations that lie at a great distance from Jerusalem. And there he was, with zero prospects for a musician in those remote places. There are a number of circumstantial reasons that appear to have contributed to the psalmist's depression. And yet together they still do not add up in the psalmist's mind to explain his despair. He has many things to complain about, but there's not one that he can identify as the sole problem, which makes it nearly impossible to know what solution there could possibly be for his melancholy. He's able to articulate many things that bother him, but still he wonders at his soul. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's sad, and his sadness is greater than the sum of all the reasons why he should be sad. He's blue. He's more than blue. He's in the grip of despair. And yet the psalm ends with a confident declaration of hope. A firm belief that his situation will be reversed. At the beginning, uh, he mourns his physical and temporal distance from the temple. He remembered when he would lead God's people in a processional of singing and dancing. But at the end of the psalm, that bitter memory has become a beacon of hope. What what, What once was will be again. Send out your light and your truth, he asks of God in 43.3. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Listen to the, the physical progression of those two verses. He'll not only be brought to Jerusalem, to God's holy hill, but to his dwelling, to his temple. And pressing further in, he'll come to the altar where he will not stop, for he will meet with God directly. With confidence, he will approach God, seated on the throne, for it's a throne of grace. Hope has interrupted his despair. Yes, the refrain is still repeated at the end of the psalm. But one scholar has correctly pointed out that the psalmist movement from despair to hope is captured in miniature in this refrain repeated throughout. Over the course of these two psalms, taken as a single unit, we see the emphasis of the psalmist's experience shift from the first part of the refrain, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? To the second half of the refrain, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The refrain doesn't change throughout the song. So that at the beginning, the hope is there, just as it is at the end. But the hope that began as a a faint whisper, a weak reminder, a cold comfort, ends with a confident proclamation. In the same way, the turmoil of the soul, which was both blinding and deafening at the beginning has persisted to the end, but it's somehow become livable and has become quieted by hope. As another scholar simply puts it, resolution in the form of deliverance has not yet come, but the psalmist can live with things better. The problem isn't removed for the psalmist, but he's learned to live with hope in the presence of despair. Which makes us wonder, what brought about this change? Looking at, internally at the psalm, several people 
have identified tactics that facilitated this change in the psalmist's outlook. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was both a pastor and a medical doctor in Wales, wrote extensively on the Christian's experience of depression. And there's a place in his book titled Spiritual Depression, where he writes about how to, how to affect this same change in your experience of depression. And he writes this, You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you, be, have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. In short, Dr. Jones is saying you, you must wrestle with yourself, as this psalmist did. You must talk to yourself constantly. God does not expect us to to passively accept with indifference the confusion and pain of this world. We are not Stoics, not at all. Christ does not call us to transcend suffering and arrive at a place of enlightenment where it can no longer touch us or impact us. No, he calls us to struggle through suffering in faith. Because our struggling acknowledges that this isn't how the world was created to be, nor will be. Jesus himself wept, did he not? In our New Testament reading from this morning, we see that his soul was in such anguish. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. He confesses, my soul is troubled. And he did not ask for God to remove the cause of his distress, but rather to give him the grace to glorify God in his faithful suffering. And as we turn our eyes to Jesus, we fulfill the second part of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' advice for dealing with depression. Again, he writes, And then, after having taken yourself in hand, you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Which is exactly what we see the psalmist do. Somewhere about the middle of the psalm, between verses 6 and 7, there's a transition in the psalmist's audience. He moves from addressing his soul exclusively to addressing and contemplating God. I remember you, he writes in verse 6. And in the first verse of chapter 43, this remembrance has blossomed into a prayer to God, a conversation with him. Vindicate me, O God. You are the God in whom I take refuge. And looking to God, the psalmist is able to finally look beyond his own misery. And that's when hope floods in. As one scholar put it, the change from introverted reflection to external plea is the beginning of real progress for the psalmist. What do we know of God that would cause us to hope in our despair? Well, we know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a human while still retaining his deity. He's fully God and fully human. And we know that he experienced the sorrow of this world as a human being, as you and I do. His soul was often disturbed, and as he himself confesses in our New Testament passage. We have a compassionate God who's able to relate to us in our experience of this world because he experienced it himself. In fact, to further prove his solidarity with us, we see him relive the story of the despairing psalmist who wrote Psalm 42 and 43. 
On Palm Sunday, just four weeks from today, we will see Jesus leading the people of God in a processional of worship and dancing into the holy city of Jerusalem. There were palm branches being waved and a red carpet assembled out of the coats of those who lined the streets shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. It was a sort of worship that C.S. Lewis described for us earlier. Jesus lived the joy that the psalmist remembered in the bitterness of his despair. And he also knew the feeling of being cut off. In just one week, Jesus experienced the full story of Psalm 42 and 43. He went from a joyful processional to the loneliness of the garden to the silence of the cross. He was beaten with fists and spit upon. He was mockingly asked, where is your God? And he himself wondered the same. He was abandoned. He cried out to God from the cross and there was no response. The eternal Son of God had actually been abandoned by the Father. It was truly unfathomable despair. But he was abandoned in order to draw you closer to himself and to bring us to God. He lived our story in order that we might live his. We inherit all that he is, which means that we have hope in this life because he is not dead but alive. He's our living hope. He has proven victorious over all things and he will turn no one away who comes to him in faith. He'll turn no one away. Instead, he will walk with us through the fire and the darkness and the depression and he will bring us to the holy hill, to the dwelling of God, past the altar where he died as our sacrifice and directly to God our Father where we receive grace upon grace, upon grace. In Jesus, our despairing souls are met with hope. Whatever it is you are experiencing, hope in God, for you shall again praise him, your salvation and your God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.